0: This is our second of two lectures on divorce and remarriage. So let's start by recapping what we looked at last time. Uh, So I've mapped out with some names just so we can all be clear, kind of an example of what we're talking about. Um, Bob and Sue married in church. Uh, Bob turns out to be drunk, violent. Sue therefore has very, appropriate reasons to leave him. But she is, although they're separated, she is still married to him for life because their marriage was in church. She therefore, she nonetheless gets a civil union with John. uh, And so we were therefore looking at what is her status in the church. Um, And I haven't in my notes here, looks at any significant length of the question of a declaration of nullity process. I'm presuming you're gonna do that in canon law of marriage, Um, but that would be one of the the routes for Sue to consider. Uh, If it was all kind of being done in the proper sequencing, when she leaves Bob and she feels that is irredeemable as a situation, before she starts romantically looking to anybody else, she should seek a declaration of nullity of her union. Now that said, many people, even though they separate, don't feel um, immediately at least that that's a permanent thing. Or they might not think that what a declaration of nullity means is actually a description of their marriage. That a declaration of nullity is saying actually, despite all appearances to the contrary in the initial ceremony and such, a declaration of nullity is saying it never was a marriage. There was something defective from the beginning that meant it was never really a marriage. And you will meet a significant number of people who will say, well, no, I think we were married. Um, So therefore, should they be seeking a declaration of nullity? Well, that would seem to be a contradiction then. Though sometimes people will say, no, we were married, kind of because they don't really understand what a marriage is. So sometimes that's a thing to, for us to kind of pastorally help talk people through Let's just flick through the different pages we went through before. So page one, just wanted to start with the scriptural texts. Um, Page two, we looked at canonically the grounds for a separation. Just to be clear, there are grounds in the Catholic vision of marriage to separate. Um, But a separation is a different thing from a divorce. It's obviously a stage before a divorce, but it doesn't automatically imply a divorce. A divorce is a civil event rather than a church event, though there is in canon law a process for a separation. But as we discussed briefly in the American context, there being a church process for a formal separation just doesn't exist. Um, In the history of the church, Catholic cultures, societies, there would have been a process where kind of the church was everything, so to speak, and you'd have gone to your local bishop for a formal declaration for a separation that there were grounds which if you think about it would mean no one else could then accuse you of behaving inappropriately, that you've taken it to the church authority. The church authority has said, yes, you should separate or you may separate. Um, That's not the world we live in. Um, But generally speaking, there are grounds for separation. Page three, I taught through, What is Sue's status? She is divorced and remarried. What is her status in the church uh, and why? Any comments since we had our last lecture? In the sense of a couple of days to have been thinking about things or not? So, one aspect in the sense of bottom-line criteria, no Holy Communion, no Confession, but also certain ecclesial responsibilities wouldn't be appropriate lest there be some kind of scandal that this person looks like they're not in some sense living the Gospel but they've got a position public in the Church that therefore makes them in some sense a role model And I was making the point in every parish, which positions would be in that category is gonna vary. So just being an organist, as I said, doesn't automatically put you in that category or not. Um, But it's one of the the, the criteria to consider in terms of how someone sits in the church. I noted though, and this is and to repeat today, what does all this mean pastorally, this thing, no communion, no confession, this is a transitional state. It's not the desire of the church that somebody be put in that status and left there. The desire is that this is a phase while somebody is resolving their status before the Lord, before the church. And so pastorally, as a priest, um, to be clear, that's in your mind in how you're presenting this. How you articulate that to somebody is going to depend on where they are in terms of being ready to hear what you're saying. Um, but we're wanting this to be a, a step in the process, not the end. Yeah. So if you're
1: doing marriage preparation. It seems like you should also tell them, hey, look, you can't come to holy community as long as you're living together. Um, but that seemed, there seems to be less emphasis on that than there does on the holy community in this situation. Yeah. But they uh, seem very similar. To me.
0: Though I think I could add to that, that would be just one of many grounds when yeah, we should be... Yeah, right, no, I do yep, that's, yep, that's just... Right, right. Uh, but I think... really what's behind your question is actually this question really should be broadened much more generally and if we're failing to do that people are right to say well why are we divorced and remarried people not allowed communion and all these other people who are equally in terms of the sixth commandment not living it out as the church says nothing being said to them So somebody in the same sex union, we should be saying that to. Somebody just, um, whether that's legally expressed or not, um, but the scenario you've raised, someone just living together, it's slightly different if they're living together while seeking to remedy the situation in marriage, in terms of being prepared for marriage. So what you've just described is a conversation I have sought to have with couples, but they are seeking to put it right. And sometimes, um, despite what the secular world would have us believe, sometimes they won't be engaging in the marriage act before marriage, even though they're sharing a house, which is an occasion of sin, does put them in a situation of temptation. Is not advised for all kinds of reasons of what it looks like as well as the risk to themselves. But I would just caution you to be careful in addressing that question to not presume they're living in sin when they might be inappropriately living together but not in sin. The couple you're preparing for marriage is different also in that there's something tragically almost pathetic in how inadequate our marriage preparation typically is. Because in canon law, they have a right to get married. So we only have a grounds to stop them. If there are pretty serious grounds. Um, so they, in all, well, in my common experience, frequently they're not coming to Mass to begin with, but they're coming wanting to be prepared for marriage. They're only wanting to be prepared for marriage because they want to have the ceremony. Um, so the whole thing of your sessions with them is kind of just a hoop they know that they've got to jump through. Um, so your capacity to have a conversation about conversion and not going to communion It's going to depend a lot on where they're coming from to begin with. That's a long answer, but basically, you, you, your your question's very appropriate.
2: What's the difference between um, excommunication like and
0: not going to communion? This? You've not done canon law yet? No. Okay, so, um, and I'm I'm not a canon lawyer in terms of giving a, a truly satisfactory answer to this, but excommunication is a very different act from someone not receiving communion. So a guy who's masturbated and isn't gonna receive communion until he gets to confession, is not excommunicated, he's just not disposed to receive communion Um, that's the category here and it's this is something about their public situation that's causing it but it's very different from being excommunicated which is a canonical penalty imposed similar to what I was saying in terms of excommunication I think one of the phrases is it always has a medicinal purpose it's seeking to be a cure to win someone back that you kind of highlight what is wrong in their situation by this declaration of excommunication but it's a much more it's a canonical act in a way that this isn't Um, and so I have always as a pastor just said no they're not excommunicated excommunications a much more dramatic formal thing this is not like that um,
1: the
0: right so danger of death um, pretty much all restrictions of anything go. uh, On the grounds that um, we're we're presuming some repentance and we're wanting to, at the moment or risk of death, not to be so demanding about a set of questions of how exactly repentant are you right now, um, when somebody's not really able to articulate that. So they get the benefit of the doubt. Um, But then it will often happen, you'll have someone say in hospital, danger of death, um, you anoint, absolve, give communion, um, even though they're in this state. But then actually they perk back up, they're fine, they leave hospital, and then they're not allowed communion again, if actually, When they're out, they say, well, actually, no, I'm not changing my state of life. Um, So in the situation of danger of death, they get the benefit of the doubt. But even then, I suppose, someone could be quite resolute about their state, and then the, the sacraments wouldn't be appropriate you could still pray with them, encourage them to some form of repentance, encourage them to be open to the question of what might repentance be, um, even if they don't see it clearly. Um. Okay, page four, we looked at the question of what it means for Sue and John to live as brother and sister. So the scenario most immediately referred to in the various canonical texts is envisaging that Sue and John now have a a few children of their own. And if they separate as they should separate, because they're not actually married, if they separate, they will deprive the children of John as their father. So that would be grounds to live in the same house, but not live as husband and wife, to live as brother and sister. And as I was saying it, that might on one level sound unrealistic, but i know many cases where couples will agree to that. Um, that they, they entered into this situation frequently when they weren't practicing or they weren't, thinking about these things, they come to some kind of conversion practice of the faith, they realize their situation is at some level a mess, there's a desire to put it right but also realizing it's not going to be straightforward, that kind of whatever happens there is going to be untidy. Either the children lose John as their dad or or they're living together, but they're not really living together because um, they're brother and sister, not husband and wife. So we need to encourage people that this is possible. This, there is a kind of human way in which this can be lived out. Um, and as I think I also said in confession to encourage them even if they resolve to do this, but then Sue and John fall repeatedly in terms of engaging in marital acts and whatever else. um, To encourage them if they fall, that they can make this work. Um, Rather than saying, okay, you've fallen once and that's the end of this now. Um, You're never to come to communion again. that, that like any other sin, we can rise and rise again. Okay, so page five is where we would got to. So this is the situation where um, everything in the previous pages, the church documents were describing the situation and kind of presuming that Sue is gonna hear what the church has said and accept that she may not receive communion? What happens when she pushes herself forward anyway? Um, So I started by saying the priest needs to check the facts rather than just relying on hearsay and gossip. If it's all possible, taught to Sue. Um, I did make the point though that in my experience, Frequently people will avoid giving you opportunities to talk if they have something that will be awkward to talk about because they don't want to talk about it and it is awkward for them and for you. So they might arrive late to Mass and leave early. Um, So what happens when... Either you've not been able to explain the situation to her or you have explained it and she just comes up to communion anyway. Say so that, but if they insist, um, you have to refuse them even if it's in public. Um, now, can you see where the font gets a bit smaller and more condensed? There's a block quote there quoting the Pontifical Council for the Interpretation of Legislative Texts. Daniel, could you read that block quote for us? Naturally. Naturally,
1: Pastoral prudence would suggest strongly the avoidance of instances of public denial of Holy Communion. Pastors must strive to explain to the concerned faithful the true ecclesial sense of the norm in such a way that they will be able to understand it or at least respect it. In those situations, however, in which these precautionary measures have not had their effect or in which they're not possible, The minister of communion must refuse to distribute it to those who are publicly unworthy. They are to do this with extreme charity, not to look for the opportune moment to explain the reasons that require the refusal. They must, however, do this with firmness, conscious of the value that such signs of strength have for the good of the church and of souls.
0: And I note next that the responsibility lies with the priest and therefore may not be dispensed even by a bishop. Michael, could you read that quote? The discernment of cases in which the faithful who find
1: themselves in described conditions are to be excluded from Eucharistic communion is the responsibility of the priest who is responsible for the community. They are to give precise instructions to the deacons as to any extraordinary minister regarding the mode of acting in the concrete situation. So in some my... Pastoral assignment the parish. There were like two thousand people coming to mass each week. Do you have a picture directory of the people who are forbidden? Because I mean, there were like a hundred plus extraordinary visitors. Right. Um, this seems like this is more for a small parish, we knows rather like than like high school situations. Yeah, big parish were. I mean, there there were people who had been there for twenty years and didn't know the other people. That
0: it's sure. Sure. Concept. Yeah. Or like yeah. Whatever,
1: and they're um, they both very involved, but just in different
0: things. So to practically implement this, well, let's first take a step back and say what's being envisaged here is the priest will have told those who distribute communion if there is somebody that isn't to receive communion. My experience it's incredibly rare for this situation to map out where you're having to explain to one of your extraordinary Eucharistic ministers, if so-and-so comes forward, I won't give them communion and you shouldn't either. Um, I don't think I've ever had that happen more than once. So kind of there's been that confrontation, um, but it hasn't happened a second time with the same person. So the scenario where you kind of need to have an ongoing database, a list of photos in the sacristy or whatever you're describing, I don't think is a real need. Um, But that is kind of what's implicit in there, depending on what the situation is going to be. Can we note some background things here? Um, So there is, your extraordinary Eucharistic ministers, when they're trained, should be trained to have an awareness that something like this might arise and that it would not be their role to be told why. Because that would be giving them kind of privileged private information. So if they're not comfortable with having the priest say to them, so-and-so isn't to receive communion and accepting your judgment, then they're saying they're not going to take on this role, is how I would phrase it. Um, If they don't trust you enough for that, they're not trusting you in your judgment as pastor. So if you've had that conversation early, if the situation arises later, there's some preparation for it. Um, I think I've only once had this situation in 23 years as a priest where someone's presenting themselves despite having been told not to. Um, The other thing, which priest makes the judgment call? The pastor. pastor. Um, And the text is very clear there. So... You as an associate priest may well know something is happening here that shouldn't happen, but it's not your judgment call. Um, And that would leave you potentially in a compromised situation. And you'll feel morally compromised unless you are clear in your head, where does the responsibility lie? The church has given that judgment to someone who isn't you it's the pastor Um, and it may be the pastor knows something you don't like them living as brother and sister or something Um, and i've been in situations or neighboring situations where the pastor refuses to tell the associate priest certain things because he's just the associate you know So it may be the pastor does truly know a reason why this person should receive communion, despite other bits you know. It's the pastor's judgment call.
2: Yeah. Not, yeah.
0: Um, So if I'm honest, sometimes you get asked those questions and you haven't thought through your answer in advance. Yeah, but what would you want to not be divulging private information? And somebody's marital status and brother and sister type questions, there's a whole bunch of stuff there that shouldn't really be publicly disseminated. So you, I think the, the, best way to appro- approach that would be to have all of your extraordinary Eucharistic ministers know they can trust the pastor, that you take these issues seriously. And if you've indicated this person should be receiving communion, you're asking them to trust your judgment. And kind of in reverse of what I said, if they're not going to trust your judgment, you accept that, but then they shouldn't take on this role. Um, And I think you could point out multiple scenarios that somebody else wouldn't know. It could be that there's been a declaration of nullity. It could be that they're living in brother and sister. That there's multiple possibilities in your knowledge of the situation you have discerned that they may receive communion. And that's all the extraordinary Eucharistic minister needs to know which is therefore divulging as little personal information as possible. Well, I think also trying to say that with respect to everybody. So respect to the extraordinary Eucharistic minister who is wanting to do the right thing rather than just saying, don't be a busy buzzy, it's none of your business. Um, but just try to calm them, reassure them you take this seriously too, it's your judgment call, and you have examined the situation. And it might be you've examined the situation and you have a plan to discuss this with the person in the next few weeks. And so for now, you're kind of letting everything continue in the public domain, avoiding a public confrontation, but you're planning to talk to them. But you haven't yet talked to them, which again comes down to the same thing: you're asking them to trust your judgment as pastor. Because um, you will have situations, I, don't know, I have, where you will have to, you will intend to talk to somebody about why they can't receive communion, but you're waiting for a moment to have that conversation, and they continue to receive communion until you have that conversation. Rather than stopping giving them communion because you have a suspicion or a thought that it might not be appropriate, but you don't know the facts, there was a phase when i was when I was in seminary, which you know is a long time ago um, where there was this line used by some canon lawyers that you should never deny someone communion. If they present themselves, they've made the judgment call, they should be given communion. This declaration from the Pontifical Council for Legislative Texts um, in the year 2000 clearly rejected that as a pastoral strategy. But how you implement that is going to be down to the local pastor in terms of the difficulty of having those conversations and so forth. Not to mention if you inherit a parish where the parish is already in some kind of liturgical civil war and the divisions within, you can't address every pastoral situation immediately. But you do, kind of back to your comment earlier about this group not having communion while that group are, people need to perceive things happening somehow in a coherent sense when you start talking about things. So like general sermons about generally being disposed to receive communion and not automatically receiving communion might be something you would need some months before actually talking about any specific cases. because even that as a question is just so counter to what is the received wisdom in a particular parish. Okay, I asked you to read the other, sorry, did you have a question? No. I asked you to read these other pages. Um, You've been able to do that. So page six is pretty technical that the, the page titled, some valid marriages are capable of being dissolved. Now you will go through this much more carefully in the, the Canon Law of Marriage course. Um, I know when I first came across this, uh, I really struggled to make sense of this thought that we say marriage is for life, but somehow not all marriages, that there are real marriages, that are still somehow capable of being dissolved. So a natural union has a capacity to be dissolved in a way that a sacramental union does not. So a sacramental union might, as a declaration of nullity process reveal, never have actually been a sacramental marriage, but it looked like it. These are cases where there was a genuine marriage, but it wasn't sacramental and therefore it's capable of being dissolved in favor of the faith. Do you want to talk through this page or do you want to leave that for canon law? Okay, so I've just flagged up the scenario here. So this is a bit like the um, nullity declaration as in terms of this being a solution to Sue's situation um, that then kind of renders the question for being remarried irrelevant because actually the second union is fine after having been examined and due process followed. And therefore, she's not then in a situation canonically of divorce and remarriage. It's not a remarriage in that sense. Okay, page seven and eight, Um, the Greek practice. How many of you have Come or heard of this discussion before? One, two, not at all. No. So, um, as I indicate there, in the build up to the Synod on Marriage, which is not a decade ago, but half a decade ago now, um, there was a lot of discussion from Cardinal Casper saying, well, the Greeks have this process by which somebody can have a second marriage, why don't we do that? Um, So here I've tried to describe what that process is. Um, I did a whole course on this when I did my doctorate. Um, You know how you, I'm sure you don't have this experience, you have some courses you think, why am I having to do this course? Um, So I had to do uh, a certain number of courses in Rome to get my doctorate. Um, And one of the few available courses was this course on divorce and remarriage in the East. And I did an entire course on this and it seemed um, not relevant to anything. Um, And then suddenly this topic came up, um, you know, within the last decade. And I ended up talking to groups of priests up and down uh, England who were saying, you know, they wanted to, to know what this was so it suddenly had been useful after all. So when you're next studying something and you think, what possible use will this be? Well, maybe there will be a use.
1: That's every
0: class here. Except this course.
1: Except this one. Of course, of
0: course. Um, So. Talking through those different paragraphs there, so oikonomia is the name of this process the Greeks have. The Greeks are very particular in saying it's not like a dispensation that you Romans have. Um, So a dispensation, the biggest difference, a dispensation only covers canonical, canon law. For them, oikonomia can even cover divine law. So you can have a dispensation from God's commandments. So
1: this would be similar to the idea that, like, oh, Isaac could marry multiple times. Or not.
0: Abraham, yeah. In some sense, a condescension to human weakness. Yes, what's different, though, is that was... Abraham not knowing the truth whereas here the Greeks are Christians they have heard the gospel and the Orthodox aren't saying that what's being done is in keeping with the moral law they're saying it is breaking the moral law but they're just relaxing the law in this instance which I find it horrific on all kinds of levels and that it just presumes within that that we're not capable of being good, that the laws aren't coherent, that God is asking us to do things that we're not capable of doing. Um, so in the Greek Orthodox, Understanding there's only ever one real marriage, one ever true marriage, one ever unique marriage. this second union or third union even is permitted, but it's not a real marriage. And as I note, there quite a little section other applications, question mark. If you look online, you'll see discussions about whether this could also be applied for abortion or same-sex unions. So um, same-sex couple are saying, well, can we have um, an economia granted to us, for us to live together? And one of the issues here is, although there aren't cases I've read where that's been done, the entire process with the re- remarriage is down to the local bishop. So there are some Orthodox bishops that will never permit it. And others, it would seem quite freely. It's entirely down to the local bishop. And it's not unlike you know, Anglo-Saxon law, a matter of precedent. So it's completely a case-by-case basis. Over the page, uh, let's go through in a bit more detail what the remarriage liturgy looks like, because this I think is very indicative of what the Greeks think they're doing. Um, so, I so said the ceremony expresses the Orthodox Church's condescending to human weakness in allowing a remarriage while still acknowledging that divorce and remarriage is a sin. So in the Greek Orthodox ritual, after the exchange of rings, the long prayer of the betrothed that would have been part of the first marriage ceremony is replaced by two penitential prayers. So the first prayer refers to the prostitute Rahab, who is forgiven by God. And the prayer asks not only for such forgiveness for the couple, but they receive the gift of tears and repentance. So rather than blessing their union, you're asking that they receive tears for what they're about to do. Even more clearly, I say, the second prayer perhaps even it is perhaps even more indicative of what the Orthodox understand themselves to be doing. It alludes to St. Paul's advice, where he says that it is better that the unmarried and widows remain single, but then adds, but if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than burn with passion. A permission that he says is a concession. So see, the second penitential prayer, I say misapplies St. Paul's words to the couple saying, uh, Tyler, could you read that? And I say, in practice, such penitential prayers are frequently a source of pastoral embarrassment at the remarriage ceremonies, because the couple have come seeing, seeking a joyful celebration and don't really buy into the of pastoral theology that holds that they're committing a sin, but that the church is condescending to their human weakness. So despite what Cardinal casper's saying, this isn't really what anyone in the West who's wanting remarriage is really looking for. Um, So the notion that there is um, a, a penitential state that the couple go through before then being allowed a remarriage is only partially true. The point I was trying to make last lecture is This transitional state is what Casper is saying we need to have anyway. A transitional, penitential state on the way to something else. The difference is, rather than that being on the way to being into a second union, this is on the way to a resolution of their situation either by separating or living as brother and sister. So we do have, we don't call it a penitential state, but um, something that is structured that way already. And I noted also in those notes, the Greeks allow a second and a third remarriage, but not a fourth remarriage. They, they just draw the line there. Um, Which seems
1: somewhat arbitrary.
0: Yeah, historically, it happened because one of their Greek uh, Byzantine emperors decreed um, that number. Um, he then, a bit like Henry VIII, ended up afterwards having more than that himself, um, So, which got very complicated in terms of their own getting his church to agree to what he was doing. He had to kind of, a bit like Henry VIII, get rid of the bishops he had in order to get it approved. I think he had a council of priests ratify it because he couldn't get a bishop to ratify it. Um, I very briefly point out there, uh, so the Greeks will trace their practice back to Basil the Great, um, but when you read the text of Basil the Great, and at least if you read Catholic commentators on Basil the Great, while Basil does have this penitential state for those who are remarried, it doesn't presume that they then remain in that second union. It would be more coherent to think it's a penitential state for those that have done this, and at the end of having done their penance, they resolve their situation by not being in the Second Union. Um, Though the later Greek practice has interpreted it the other way. But so when I did this course in Rome I was expecting there to be all kinds of patristic Greek sources that they would be referring to Um, and it turns out even in their Greek fathers there's only this one source they can point to in antiquity, um, and he's ambiguous. And they have many Greek fathers who are very clear that remarriage is forbidden. Um, John Chrysostom, very emphatic on this. Yeah. For the Greeks? Is this for the Greeks you're talking about? Or Orthodox, yeah. um, sorry, yes, you're right, the Orthodox, not the Greeks. Um, um, I think they'd have all kinds of criteria. They would, as I said already, it would vary bishop to bishop. Also, the Greek Orthodox and the other Orthodox churches also vary somewhat in their practice. So my study focused more on the Greeks, um, but the other Orthodox churches have slightly different trajectories, and not all of the Orthodox churches do this at all. We're ready to move on to Morris Laetitiae? And again, have you had time to read this? Um, so I'm trying to make the, the general point here, I don't think Amorisotitzi has actually changed the law. Uh, there's been vast confusion around it, but when you look at the documents themselves, what's been said, if you were expecting somewhere there to be a clear rupture with what has gone before, the most you find is this one obscure footnote that when Pope Francis was asked about it, said, well, what footnote? I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, So the notion that Pope Francis slipped this footnote in to kind of, in a footnote, change the whole tradition on this practice, I just don't think it's coherent. Um, So what's the core of uh, Amoris Laetitiae on page nine here? So as I put in bold there, this phrase pastoral accompaniment. Um, This is something Pope Francis talks about in many things, accompaniment. So in the seminary we talk about the art of accompaniment that the formator is to have with the seminarians, to be walking alongside you, living alongside you, the pastor likewise with his people in all kinds of things in their difficult pastoral family situations is to be alongside them. You may have heard this get critiqued as being kind of a very clerical view of the church. So your scenario of a a parish of 2000 how can we realistically talk about the pastor pastorally accompanying 2,000 people? I mean, he can, but in a very different sense from when he's got a parish of 200. I've only ever had parishes of less than 300 on a Sunday. Um, Even then, to know everybody well enough to meaningfully accompany them is impossible. But those who are in, however we're going to exactly phrase it, in more complicated pastoral situations that need more attention, the message is we shouldn't just push them aside, in some sense engage with them, accompany them. So halfway down page nine, I have the little section there called, well, the big section called controversial debated question. Can the divorced and remarried be admitted to communion? Um, and then I quote there footnote 351. Christopher, can you read that footnote for us?
2: In certain cases, this can include the help of a sacraments. and I want to, remain, to remind priests and the, remind priests that the confessional must not be a torture chamber but rather an encounter with the Lord's mercy. I would also point out that the Eucharist is not a prize for the perfect, but a powerful medicine and
0: nourishment for the weak. And so the question is, what does that mean? And I note that that paragraph doesn't actually explicitly refer to the divorce and remarried, Um, and it's actually that paragraph about a broad range of undefined difficult cases and wounded families and give some I give some other examples that Where it'd be very easy to see how you could with On one level, there's a way of interrogating everyone who comes to you that makes confession like a torture chamber But also those three examples I give there um, Where the Eucharist isn't a prize for the perfect, but a powerful medicine. Um, So the unmarried who have children, that is among the scenarios that Amoris Satitia is talking about, families that are not normative, are not what they should be in some sense. Does the church just dismiss them or does the priest accompany them? My experience as a priest, you don't need to do much. The example there, someone unmarried who has a child, you don't need to do much to make such a person feel welcomed and valued. Um, The fact that the priest talks to them, the fact that you invite them. There's an odd thing in parish life that you may have seen in different, that when you ask somebody to do you a favor in terms of parish activities, frequently they feel honored and flattered. So I've asked this person to join the tea and coffee rotor. Um, and they feel that they're a valued and important person because I've asked them to do me a favor. Um, now I say that to indicate that actually it can be really good for people that we ask them to do things. Um, And single mothers would be one of the categories where I've seen that. Um, And it can be very easy with single mothers of a certain category, shall I say, where it's clear they're looking at their situation as, I didn't intend to have a child out of marriage, it just kind of happened. very different from someone who's kind of got a strident feminist, I'm against marriage kind of thing, which I don't think you come across that often in the church. Yeah, um, which you could, and then there needs a different kind of engagement somehow there. But there are many people in messy family situations where you could as a priest be harsh, inquisitive, confession with them like the torture chamber or um, seeking to be welcoming um, and behave with them in a way that other parishioners see that they likewise should be welcoming which is you know I, I guess we've all seen You know, a Catholic family that are trying to raise their children good Catholics and don't want them to see bad examples. And so they don't want them mixing with bad parishioners. We need to kind of help people navigate the desire to have good examples around them from an unrealistic, pure church um, scenario. for the other yes yes Um, and I think we want to engage with that question respecting their concern but saying there are other ways we can do this Um, page 10 I just note the different bishops conferences Um, So both the American and British, the bishops uh, said nothing. Um, The Argentinians made a fairly long statement that Pope Francis said, this is definitive. There are no other interpretations, but uh, I think it's generally regarded as actually not clarifying much. So therefore there aren't other interpretations. Whereas the Polish and the Maltese bishops at direct odds in how they've uh, approached this. Um, so briefly, the Polish bishops in utter continuity with the tradition and elaborating more Letizia in a way that makes it coherent with the tradition. The Maltese bishops, let me just read through that little section in detail there. So as I summarize it, rupture, rupture from the tradition that's gone before. So discernment, accompanied by the pastor can result in, open quotes, a separated or divorced person who is living in a new relationship manages with an informed and enlightened conscience to acknowledge and believe that he or she is at peace with God. He or she cannot be precluded from participating in the sacraments of reconciliation in the Eucharist. Now I note the Vatican didn't make any particular comment on that to yea or nay. I comment, I say, Henry VIII of England felt at peace with God with each of the six wives he married. He discerned this after a long consultation with his trusted clergy, having chopped the heads of those clergy who disagreed with him. Um, So, you know, this this method has been tried before. page 11 of my notes um so how many of you familiar with uh the author of this little page ed peters so he's a canon lawyer comments on all kinds of things i would commend him to you for future reference This is an example where his Canon Law blog, yeah, that's a fairly short article, but very closely, carefully written, analyzed. Um, I'm not a Canon Lawyer. It's useful for me when there's a respected Canon Lawyer source I can look at and see what he says. Um, Okay, comments on that page and what he's saying. So point one on his list there, he just notes that the whole phrase at peace with God um, just makes a nonsense of the various canons. If if at peace with God is the criteria for coming to communion, then there are other canons that just need to be ripped out of the code of canon law. Um, and he takes issue with their very use of the word conjugal, which in the tradition means marriage and is instead just been read in such m- much more broad sexual um, meanings, rendering the whole thing again, meaningless.
3: It seems like a slippery slope
0: here. I think beyond the slippery slope, you, you've already hit the bottom, um, but...
3: Yeah, I, think- I, I mean, in-
0: Yeah, yeah, right, right. Because
3: then, well, if this is at peace, well then why not this
1: thing over here and this thing over here? Yeah,
0: yeah. Hitler
1: was at peace with God, so he didn't
0: have, have too. Which is basically your point, that yeah, that there's, once the criteria is at peace with God, anything goes. Yeah, and in that sense a slippery slope. Page 12, um, so the whole five dubia of the four cardinals, um, that's kind of old news now, um, but there was no answer to those questions. Um, You could say the fact there wasn't an answer means what they're concerned with has been affirmed as the tradition. That would be one way of reading that. Um, What were you going to?
1: just thinking
0: about Father Ad, old advancement guy here. Yeah. He gave up alcohol until these were answered. Um, that lasted like two weeks. <laughs> 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 I had heard that, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: <clears throat> yeah, I don't even know if it lasted
0: two weeks. <laughs> okay, very briefly, then lastly, page 13. Um So I'm trying to summarize here everything together. Um, So I've titled this page, The Call to Conversion. And this I think has been a missing part in a lot of these discussions. Everything in the Christian life is a call to conversion, a call to a new way of living. What is the new way of living that is possible and better, even if it's difficult in this regard? So just, I'm gonna read through here. How is the priest to engage pastorally with those who are divorced and remarried? So first, he must, however gently, however slowly, call them to a different way of life. That, in his mind, has to be what he's doing. As I say, you may have months before you actually are able to have that conversation. Might even, in a parish of 2,000, be years, where you've got all kinds of other people, you're talking to many things, and you're aware of that couple, either of what you think is going on, or you know is going on, and you're aiming to have that conversation, but you, when you're gonna get there, that's, you gotta fit with all the other stuff going on. Is that a question? No. no. Okay. Um, I note that the call to believe always includes the call to repentance. So if you read uh, John Paul II, uh, his letter on confession, um, makes that point very clearly. You know, What's the first public words of our Lord in the gospel? Repent and believe. That the call to believe and the call to repent go hand in hand. That there is a way of living that is part of what we are being called to. Amendment of life. So living with a partner who is not your true spouse is what Christ said it is, namely committing adultery. Thus repentance involving a firm purpose of amendment must involve the intention to separate from the second partner. Or if duties to children in the second union prevent you separating, then at least living in continence as brother and sister rather than husband and wife. Um, then I requote that block from the CDF saying um, that they may not receive communion. Then repeating what I've said, but putting it all together here, I say Casper suggested in 2014 that the Church introduce a state of penance for the divorced and remarried. See, but the current official practice already has a transitional tr- penitential state for those in this situation; that they're not excommunicated coming back to that question earlier, they remain in the church, but they're not admitted to Holy Communion. This state is not permanent, but only for as long as their situation persists, i.e. until they're committed to living in complete continence. Uh, Then, David, can you read the section that says, towards Christians, and this is from the Catechism.
3: For Christians who live in this situation, In a Christian manner, priests and the whole community must manifest an attentive solicitude so that they do not consider themselves separated from the church, in whose life they can and must participate as baptized persons. They should be encouraged to listen to the word of God, to attend the sacrifice of the Mass, to persevere in prayer, to contribute to works of charity and to community efforts of justice, bring up their children in the Christian faith cultivate the spirit and practice and
0: thus implore day by day God's grace so that is a block quote that John Paul II said in his letter on families familiaris consortio that is in the catechism um, it's quite a long list of things that they are to be doing in the church um, and trying to point out even though it does seem like No Holy Communion and no Confession is a big deal as it is. There is still an awful lot that they can continue doing. And until their situation is resolved, we're wanting them to continue doing all that with the pastoral goal that while doing all that, something will click, enable to move them to where they need to get to.
3: We haven't talked about this much, but I think in America, especially, there's uh, this stigma about not going and receiving Holy Communion, um, which puts undue pressure on people who, for whatever reason... Yeah. You at least in America that makes it a little more difficult
0: definitely um, definitely. in
3: the accompaniment area
0: and so I think as pastors that's a thing to be aware of not just in this situation but a broad range of situations and all those little things in parish life that work in the other direction to try and stop so when you have the ushers line by line tell everybody to go forward that's not a good dynamic. It's a dynamic that is presuming everyone's going to communion. You may be, you may be visiting Lutherans, you may be visiting Methodists, you may be uh, complete atheists who are just coming along to help keep the children in order, um, but you're going up to communion. Um, so little things like that, whenever we see a practice that is just making good sacramental practice awkward, we need to find a way to somehow replace that.
2: Um. Amongst Latinos, it's almost the opposite, or um, they are multiple the points of scrupulous. Um, the one thing I do I like
0: Definitely. Um, I would add whenever I as a priest comment on people coming to communion, I will try and broaden it to not just whether you're in a state of sin, whether you're divorced and remarried, but all kinds of visitors with us here today. And it's wonderful that you're here, but for you to, uh, so I'll make the point during communion, please feel comfortable to remain in your pew You don't need to get up. Uh, So often people will get up because they kind of feel they have to, because the ushers move them all. Um, And then say, to be properly disposed to receive communion, um, but having prefaced it by there are many varied reasons why you might not be receiving communion now, which then means anyone in a particular reason is just less attention drawn to them. Which is actually true. So if you, simply breaking the Eucharistic fast is a a reason, a very unexciting, unpublic reason. um, I, I wasn't thinking therefore not to go to communion today.